Welcome to Feminist Popcorn, the celebration and growing archive of the greatest movies about women. I'm Samantha Rare, here with my co-host Elizabeth Frankel. We're still not over this Halloween remix, so we're using it again for horror. Thelma, Black Swan, and The Babadook. Welcome to another week of Feminist Popcorn. Welcome to your doom. It's horror week. Uh, scary this movie. This is scary week. <laughs> Interesting because I would not consider myself a horror fan. I'm a horror fan if horror was always as good as these three movies. Yeah. I feel like so much of horror culture is about people with chainsaws chasing naked girls. <laughs> and I have very little interest in that. But using the style of horror to tell a story, I think, is amazing. I just don't think there's many good horror movies. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think if there were more horror movies that I thought were great, I would love horror. Mm-hmm. I was obsessed with Get Out. I'm obsessed with The Quiet Place. Yeah. But those are all within the last like five years. So what is it that these three horror movies do differently? I think the style tends to take a back seat to what is the core of any good story, which is the character. All three of these movies take stylistic traditions of horror to tell a very compelling story that would have been compelling if it wasn't a horror movie anyway. Mm -hmm. The horror movies that I'm most invested in are the movies that use horror like the horror of blank, the horror of something that is real in real life anyway. Get Out is about the horror of racism in America. And A Quiet Place is the horror of trying to keep your children safe in a dangerous world. You could have made a movie about trying to keep your children safe in a dangerous world. You could have made that without it being a horror movie. The fact that it's horror elevates the story, but the story has to be good to begin with. Mm -hmm. And all three of these movies that we're talking about today do that. They're all actually about something else. And they just use scary editing to elevate the emotions. Absolutely. I feel like people walk around in their daily lives afraid of things all the time. That's where political anger comes from a lot of the time. I think it's being afraid of other groups of people. We walk around afraid that we're not good enough. We walk around afraid that people don't love us as much as we want them to. Like our whole lives are based in fear. That's what so much of the human condition is. So I think there's an amazing untapped well in the horror genre of theatricalizing real fears that people have. A lot of horror movies are a bit more at face value, like the horror of a home invasion or the horror of ghosts or the horror of a serial killer. Those are all real things, but like, I'm not really that concerned with serial killers on a day-to-day basis. I'm more concerned with the things that are brought up in these movies, which specifically are about femaleness, but could be about a multitude of things that people are horrified by. I think all three of the movies are specifically also about repression. Mm. And because they're women, because they're living under the patriarchy, it is all repression having to do with their femaleness. They're so afraid of something inside them that it comes out as horror because they're so afraid of something that the patriarchy has told them to repress. Right. One thing that I love that all of these movies have in common is that they're all slow burns. They all start in a place of reality. There's not much indication that these are going to be horror movies in the first like 20 minutes of any of these movies. But as the emotion intensifies, the wacky, spooky horror intensifies as well. Mm -hmm. We're starting with Thelma. Love Thelma. I think it's interesting to start with Thelma when last week we covered witchcraft 
witchcraft. And Thelma seems like a natural progression from specifically Carrie. Thelma seems like a huge tribute to Carrie. Yeah. And I don't think I would have been so conscious of that if we hadn't just done Carrie. Yeah. Absolutely. The idea of repressed emotions, repressed sexuality and individuality being the cause of psychokinetic abilities, (laughs) that's straight from Carrie. Thelma's emotions manifest in these powers that she has. And we're going to get into what those powers represent and how to take them at face value literally in the movie, as well as how this film is really talking about things that are much larger. Thelma came out in 2017. It was directed by Joachim Trier and written by Eskil Vogt and Joachim Trier. And it stars Eileen Harbo as Thelma. We were talking about these movies in relation to the way that the drama unfolds. The Mm -hmm. slow burn. Yeah. Thelma is really interesting because it opens with a bang. It opens with this really mysterious scene in the woods with a father pointing a gun at his daughter. Right. It's very ominous and you don't know what's going on. And filmed beautifully. Yeah. And then we shift and we're on a college setting and we're watching what to me was a very relatable experience of a girl struggling to find herself in her freshman year, on the phone with her parents every other night, updating them on on what she's doing. She's confused about her sexuality. She is experimenting with drinking and trying to push herself to go to parties, even though she's shy because she wants to make friends. All of that is fairly real world compared to what follows, which is a confusing and you might think random fit that she has in the library. The main indication I have that something is mysterious and weird is the way it's shot. We have this beautiful shot that introduces Thelma in her current age, where we start off very, very far away in this courtyard and we zoom in and we don't know who we're supposed to be looking at. And then eventually we realize it's Thelma, which is a shot that very closely parallels the opening shot in Carrie, which I think is very funny. Besides that shot, the music is very slow and ominous. The pace of the movie is very slow, pretty much throughout the entire movie. So even though it's set on a college campus of a girl who's going through fairly normal things at the beginning, you're given an indication by the editing of the movie, even from the beginning, that something creepy is going on, Mm -hmm. even though you haven't been introduced to what it is yet. Our first big moment of realizing that something is a little weird is when Thelma has her first seizure in the library. You see this girl sitting next to her. You don't know who the girl is yet. You just know that Thelma clocks her and then has a seizure. And I'm interested in how all of the questions questions that we have in the first few scenes are answered as the movie unfolds. Why is her mother in a wheelchair? Why does the father seem to have a very specific, particular religious philosophy? Why is Thelma so shy? Yeah. Why are her parents so protective? Yeah. Why are they keeping track of her every move? And what's brilliant about the movie is they're protective enough that it could just be normal protective parents. Like my parents knew my college schedule, my first few semesters, just to like, in case they needed me, they knew where I was. Yeah. And then eventually they got over, they didn't care anymore. But you don't see that being portrayed in films very often. The fact that it's included could just be really detailed filmmaking, or it could be an indication that something is very unique in the dynamic of this family. So if each of these movies is the horror of 
something. Mm -hmm. What is Thelma? Thelma is about the horror of learning that you are different from how your conservative family wants you to be. And specifically, a lot of that otherness that she's experiencing is realizing that she's gay. Yeah. There's such a deep shame in her through the whole movie, and it's so heartbreaking to watch, that her powers reveal themselves in moments when she's afraid of what she's feeling. And as we said earlier, horror is the exploration of fear. Horror is the unveiling of fear in Mm -hmm. our lives. She's so afraid of being gay because she already has this internalized homophobia. She wants to be the good Christian girl that her parents want her to be. And her fear of rebelling from that manifests itself physically into her epileptic seizures and her being able to make things move and make people move, which is terrifying. This movie is scary mainly in its themes. There's not a lot of jump scares. It's not overtly graphic the way that some of these other movies are. What's scary is her having to live with herself in a way that she doesn't want to. Yeah, I think the word homophobia really hits it because it is a fear of gayness. Yeah. The fact that her powers are dangerous, I think is more of a metaphor of her fear of her gayness being dangerous. Absolutely. And her parents' fear of her gayness being dangerous. Yeah. Their overprotectiveness of her and constant checking up on her at school, I think part of it is that they're worried about her and they want to keep her safe. I think another part of it is being terrified that her power is going to manifest in some way outside of her body. Let's talk about her childhood though, because as much as I'm completely on board that her powers have this direct parallel to her realizing that she's gay, She has exhibited these powers in the past as a child in ways that had nothing to do with the fact that she was gay. I think instead her powers are really a manifestation of a deep emotional intensity that she feels towards something that she's not supposed to be feeling. I think it's slightly more general than her being gay. Specifically, I think it's when she's ashamed of how she feels. Right. When she was six, she felt deep jealousy towards her little brother, which is A, completely understandable, and B, yeah, something you'd probably be ashamed of because you you know that it's you know irrational her powers manifest in killing her brother which ruins her family right and that narrative has nothing to do with the fact that she realizes she's gay when she's in college as we said earlier this film has a very slow smooth transition from the first half of this movie to the second half the first half feels a little bit more naturalistic you don't really know what's going on and then the second act is clearly a horror film with mm-hmm. supernatural elements i think that parallels something else very clearly in this film which is that the first first half takes place in college and the second half takes place when she returns to the site of her trauma which was her childhood home with her Mm. parents it's very clear in the second half that the root of all of Thelma's problems are her parents yeah and when you realize that they are the source of her repression and her self-loathing it's almost like a betrayal because you weren't led to believe that in the first half of the film you sort of just think they're ordinary parents Mm -hmm. i think it's great symbolism for when people grow up and they reflect on the fact that they're unhappy and they don't really know why and then they return to their childhood they're like oh i'm unhappy because all of these things happened in my childhood or with my parents that i've never addressed that I've never really gone back to. 
the film doesn't really move forward in time. It kind of moves backwards in time. You start in college and you sort of end with her as a child. And then once she's dealt with everything in her childhood, she's able to come back to present day and return to college and be an adult with Anya. Yeah. I was amazed watching Thelma with how similar it is in many of its themes to Frozen. Oh. Because her journey of repressing her powers because she thinks that they're evil. And they've hurt a younger sibling when she was younger. Whoa. (laughs) And then realizing that she can harness her powers for good Mm. is so interesting. Yeah. The fact that she leaves her home after, yes, killing her father, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah, we gotta talk about that. The fact that she leaves her home with this moment of generosity with her mother. I think it's twofold. I think it is a moment of generosity, but I also think it's a moment of, look, mom, you were wrong about me. These powers can be good. I totally agree. I had, I was wondering why she did that for her mother at the end. And I realized it's because that is her last big statement of her powers that she doesn't have to be a bad person just because she's not the perfect girl that they want her to be. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have to be bad. Right. She can help people. She can be good to people. And I think that moment is actually more for Thelma than it is for the mother. I think Thelma is showing herself that, that she can be a good person exactly as she is. And that gives her the freedom to go back to Anya. And we end the movie with this moment with Anya where Thelma maybe psychokinetically calls to Anya, (sighs) calls her to her. Yeah. The father had an interesting line earlier in the movie when he says, she didn't love you, Thelma. Yeah. She just came to you because you wanted her. Mm. Blaming Thelma's powers. Blaming her powers, but metaphorically blaming her for her gayness. Right. Thelma is able to reclaim that power at the end and show that maybe it is a power. Yes, maybe my gayness is a power. Maybe I do psychokinetically call to this woman that I love, Mm. but it is a power for good and it's beautiful. And for love. Yes. I want to talk about how this movie uses its moments of horror to express everything emotional we've been talking about. I know you and I are both really big fans of the scene where she's in the pool and she tries to swim up to the surface and suddenly there is a lid on the pool that she can't escape, which obviously connects to the frozen ice under Mm -hmm. which her brother died. That scene is so scary to me. (laughs) The way that that scene is filmed is she's just banging on the pool floor. Right, it's really happening. It's just upside down. (laughs) She's upside down because she is experiencing post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Also, one of the most memorable and terrifying moments of the movie is when she kills her father. He's in a small boat on their lake where her brother died. He combusts into flames, throws himself overboard, and realizes that as soon as he comes up out of the water, he will re-burst into flames. And so he has to drown. And that image of the father bursting into flames is a direct parallel to something that Thelma told Anya earlier, which is that when she was a child, her father held her hand over a candle and said, this is what hell feels like. And the recurring theme of this father wanting Thelma to follow what he wants her to follow for fear of punishment, for fear of shame, it was sort of the ultimate fuck you. Yeah. And again, I think that yes, in the world of the movie, Thelma does kill her father. But what that is, is really a metaphor for, you know, having to say goodbye to your family sometimes for good. Yeah, letting go of it and sort of cutting the ties. Yeah, finding your new family. Yeah. 
And I think that's a really important statement for this movie to be making because I think it rings true to a lot of kids who come from similar backgrounds. Yeah. I found it very discomforting. This is a recurring theme in this podcast that in more stylistic movies, the most disturbing moments tend not to be the stylistic moments, but in fact, it's the emotional moments. He has a few lines that made me incredibly uncomfortable. He said, you know, we never should have let you leave, which is a very bizarre thing to say to someone who you've just spent the entire movie watching be independent, be a full-grown person. He says, we never should have let you leave as if that is in any way his call. Like it immediately shows you the role of the patriarchy in the world of this movie that he feels entitled to say something like that to her. And the tipping point for me that something was super spooky and villainous about these parents was when they drug her because they would just simply rather not talk to her about what's going on. She comes home and they drug her tea and she's sort of high for the rest of the movie. I made a note that there are references throughout the movie of using drugs to give yourself permission to to feel or do something or to suppress yourself. The tea, the scene with the weed where she hallucinates hooking up with Anya. And I think in some sort of weird way, the film makes a connection that God is a drug. God is a band-aid that they were able to cover up the trauma of their family after Thelma killed her brother, that they were able to become very religious as a way to not have to deal with what really happened. Mm -hmm. I do love at the end, though, when she goes into the water after she's killed her father, that she's baptizing herself. Mm. She's cleansing herself of everything that she's been before that she hates, and she's being born anew with Anya. Yeah, and bringing a bird back from the dead. Yeah, this movie is spooky. Yeah, I think it's an impeccably made movie. Yeah. The attention to detail is incredible. The piece of hair stuck in yeah. the window. Little details like that spread throughout the movie that just make it, I think, really special. I'm also always on board with a really quiet movie Yeah, where you have to lean in. You as the audience sort of have to shut up. You have to shut your brain up. You have to like not talk over the movie because it's very quiet. Even the colors are quiet. Yeah. And the fabrics that they all wear are very soft. Yeah. She and Anya wear very plain t-shirts. They're both so gentle. And yeah. I love that. I love that their friendship was based on recognizing how gentle the other person was because they saw that in themselves. Yeah. And it really grows into a beautiful romance. Yeah. I understand instantly why they're attracted to each other. Yeah. And we also get to see them getting to know each other in a realistic way in their college setting. Mm -hmm. That they're going out together, that they're sitting together in class, that they're spending evenings together. We see the growth of their romance from friendship. Yeah. As much as Anya and the mother are huge supporting characters in Thelma's life, it's pretty damn clear that the most influential relationship in her life is that with her father. Mm. And that's because they live in a patriarchal society. And I think that's an interesting segue into Black Swan, which is so loudly about the patriarchy's oppression of women mm -hmm. and control over everything that women do, even when women aren't aware of it. Great. Black Swan. Black Swan. Wow. What a fucked up movie. Seriously. I was so upset the whole time I was watching it. Yeah. But not for the reasons that I was years ago when it came out. The first time I watched it, I was just scared because it's a really fabulous, scary movie. This time, I was upset for like deep emotional character reasons. Yeah. I remember being deeply upset 
when I saw it in the movie theaters as well. And I wasn't quite sure what I was most upset about. Totally. And what's really interesting is watching this movie now in context with the Me Too movement. It's a completely different movie now. Yeah, a better movie, I think. Mm. Going back to our phrase of the horror of, all of these movies explore the horror of something. Mm -hmm. This movie explores the horror of sexual harassment and sexual trauma. I don't think it's only the horror of sexual harassment, though. Mm -hmm. I think it's the horror of male ownership of women. Absolutely. Amen. I just want to say before we get into our interpretation, because this movie is so dense and at times very ambiguous as to what's really happening... I just sort of want to clarify that there are many ways to interpret this movie. And we'll get into it, but a lot of those interpretations are very sexist and misogynistic. Like, this film does give permission to look at it in a very misogynistic way. Sure. I think you and I see this film as feminist, as giving humanity to the women depicted, but we acknowledge that there are very legit observations about this movie that suggest otherwise. This movie is in many ways about the patriarchy, and yet because it is created by a man, it also participates in the patriarchy. Absolutely. This can be applied to any art that's done by someone that they're not depicting, like when you're depicting another group of people. If you're a man and you make movies about women, you have to be prepared for women to be more entitled to their interpretation of your movie than you are. And I think the same is true for when Black audiences interpret a white artist's work featuring Black characters. That community has more of a right to their interpretation of their stories than you do just because you're the artist. So now I think when you and I make like pretty big decisions about what this movie is about. I don't really feel weird about doing that because this is more our story than Aronofsky's story anyway. I'm super down with that. (laughs) So Black Swan was released in 2010. It was directed by Darren Aronofsky and written by his team of writers, which included Mark Heyman, Andre Hines, and John McLaughlin. And it stars Natalie Portman as Nina Sayers. So the core of what this movie is about, to me anyway, is the cycle of patriarchal violence, that women are brainwashed to need men's approval. And then because of that, we actually do become reliant on it. Yeah. And when you're not aware of how unhealthy that system is, how do you navigate that world when you don't know you're being abused and that you're being taken advantage of? which is relevant to so many abusive relationships. The patriarchy is one giant abusive relationship. (laughs) You know, this film specifies it down to one ballet director and one dancer as a representation for the abusive system of the patriarchy in general. When I first saw the movie, I really identified with Nina as a performer, as an actor feeling pressure to be perfect and to fit into a kind of box. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand that identification truly until now Mm. in the context of the Me Too movement that I realized that that idea of perfection is not my own. Yeah. And it's not Nina's. Yeah. She's trying to fit herself into a box that has been prescribed for her. By this director. Yes. And I think that one of the major criticisms of this movie, specifically from feminists, is that the women in the movie fit into stereotypical roles. Mm -hmm. They fit into this virgin horror complex that the director 
references at the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. My interpretation is that those roles are only a reflection of these women trying desperately to fit into those roles. This movie sets up very clearly, very soon, that the master of ceremonies is this man. Mm -hmm. Really the only male character in the movie. Thomas Leroy, in the first scene between Nina and her mother, they don't even refer to him by name. They just refer to him as he, Mm -hmm. as if they're talking about God. (laughs) Leroy is French for the king. (laughs) This man is the king of this ballet company, and he behaves like it. The moment he enters into the ballet studio, all of the girls in the room start removing articles of clothing, Mm. and he has this very quick look at himself in the mirror before he goes into this diatribe about Swan Lake, setting the metaphor for the rest of the movie that we're going to apply to all of these characters. In the first half of the movie, Toma is more in charge of the action and the narrative than Nina is. And Nina has to carve for herself some sort of understanding of what's happening to her. When really, I like that you said Toma is the master of ceremonies, because really, Toma is the puppet master. Yeah. He's really like the main driving force of this movie, not Nina. I would argue that because it is deeply from Nina's perspective, Mm -hmm. it is absolutely her story. Yeah. But... Her interpretation of the other characters around her is a direct response to what she's been taught by Leroy. This story that he tells in the first scene Mm -hmm. about Swan Lake, the downfall of a pure and sweet virginal girl is caused by the lustful twin, the black swan, who tricks and seduces her prince. These are the two options for women. (laughs) You can either be one, or the other. And he's the one prescribing it. He's the one narrating it. And now he takes Nina, who by all means has done a very good job her whole life fitting into one of those boxes. Yeah. And he says, now you have to be both. Yeah. You have to be the perfect woman. <sighs> Did you see the um, the video that the BBC released that was taking famous actors? Yeah. And it was sort of like a fake audition setting about the roles that female actors have to fit, that you have to be cute and innocent and also sexy, Mm -hmm. and you have to be thin but also curvy. Like, all of these dichotomies in one is the thing that creates a perfect woman. (laughs) There is no room for Grey. And that is the tragedy of the film. It's her trying to fit into this box of being perfect, even though she, like all of us, exists in the Grey in between. Perfect is a recurring theme in this movie. She's after perfection. And it was very clear in this most recent viewing that what perfect is to her is his approval, is his perception of perfection. He's the one who decides she's perfect And it's because of power. It's because he could take away this role from her at any time. Mm -hmm. This movie would not have existed if the artistic director of this company was a woman. Yeah. I think that's a really important example about when people get sensitive or defensive about why artistic directors need to be replaced. It's not as a symbol. It's so the culture of these environments can actually change. If Lily was the head of this company, it would have been an extremely different Mm -hmm. movie. It was the fact that it was this man 
who sexually abused all of his dancers. This goes back to our conversation in Romy and Michelle, actually, which, by the way, I feel like I've thought about every day since that conversation. That has affected me so deeply in the way that I think about how men rise from their childhood traumas Mm. and the patriarchy gives them permission to become vengeful towards women. And that's where a lot of abuse and harassment comes from. I've been thinking about that so much. I found it so satisfying in this viewing that she's not actually attracted to him. She just thinks she's supposed to be because that's the narrative of this company and this environment that he has established. I don't think any of them are actually attracted to him. They just know that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to sleep with the boss. It's very clear that she's terrified of him. Right. When he kisses her for the first time in his office. Yeah, it's horrible. And she bites him. That is in fucking self-defense. Yeah. That was not some kind of like sexy game that he interpreted it to be. Right. He took her moment of self-defense against him (laughs) and turned it into his own artistic inspiration. Everything this man did in this movie made me so fucking angry. I think one of the real strengths of this movie is that you can so definitively point to examples of harassment in this movie. Yes. He interrupts a rehearsal to ask Nina's co-star if he would fuck her because she's not dancing the way he wants her to be dancing. It is such outright abuse that if this director had been around during Me Too, his whole life would be disgraced. Nina is actively fighting for the approval of a man who by now would have his entire life ruined by Me Too. The most upsetting part of this movie to me is that Nina seems fairly oblivious to everything we're talking about right now. She has no idea she's being harassed. She has no idea that the way he's talking to her and approaching her is inappropriate. She sort of convinces herself that she is attracted to him and that he's talented and that she's intimidated by him. That's the narrative that she sort of fits in for herself to make sense of what's going on. And I just want to reiterate that when you're that young and you're being taken advantage of by your boss, there's really no way to give consent, even if you think you are giving consent. Mm. It actually sort of reminded me of some conversations around Monica Lewinsky, that to this day, she says that she was in love with her boss. And that is a narrative that she is absolutely entitled to. But Looking at it from the outside, not being a part of that relationship, how could you possibly be in a rational state to give consent when your boss, who is the president of the United States, is hitting on you and you're 22 years old? That is not a state to give consent. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, he connects her sexuality with her work as a performer. Yeah. And because of that, he takes ownership of her sexuality. Mm. And so the scenes in which she is experimenting in her sexuality are still all about him. He's curating her sexuality for her. Right. He puts her in a position where if she doesn't offer her sexuality to him, she's not doing her job right as a dancer. He asks her about how many sexual partners she's had And he says, we should be able to talk about this. As if it's weird that she doesn't want to talk about her sex life with her boss. Right. And you and I are both in theater. And theater is obviously no exception to having a culture of sexual harassment. But the reason this film is so interesting is because in performing, there is a grayer line. There is a more nuanced line about discussing sexuality. Because a lot of the work we do is very intimate. You know, I remember in college, I had to stage a sex scene. And there's no way you can 
can't get incredibly intimate with your coworkers when you're doing something that's that intense. Being a performer is an incredibly vulnerable experience. Yes. It's an intimate experience with your scene partners and with the people who are in the room. All of that is great. That's been happening for thousands of years. That's what theater is. That's what performing is. The problem is that men take advantage of that vulnerability for their own sexual gain. And interestingly, the Me Too movement is coinciding, not coincidentally, with film and theater environments letting go of method acting Mm. because it's all about the same thing. It's all about creating a safe working environment. Mm. And for a long time, it's been the practice, and you get it in Black Swan as well, that performers have to actually be going through what their character is going through Mm. in order for the art to be legitimate. Absolutely. Again, to quote our queen, Hannah Gadsby, (laughs) when she talks about Vincent Van Gogh, Mm. who we honor for suffering for his art, it's so backwards. Why do we care more about the art than the person? Performers are people. (laughs) Why do we want them to suffer? It's not only the audiences that are responsible for this. I think it is specifically the people who curate this art. I was thinking during this movie, you don't get to talk to a performer like that just because what she's doing is sexual. Swan Lake is sexual. Many plays are sexual. Many movies are sexual. You don't get a free reign to cross that line of sexual harassment with someone just because the work you're doing is about sexuality. Absolutely. I was thinking a lot about the way Nina kisses him at the end of the movie and what that kiss means because it has always made me uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and I never really understood how it was earned. And I realize now it's because she thinks impressing him finally has empowered her. She feels like she's won the system because she's done what he's asked her to do. One of the things we liked about our witch movies last week was the idea of taking victimhood and turning it into strength. Mm -hmm. It seems like Nina is only a victim. We've discovered from the Me Too movement that it's only really possible to reclaim that victimhood and turn it into strength in numbers. Mm. When women come together as a group and acknowledge the victimhood as a whole. I think that's a really good segue into talking about Beth who should very well have had a very important kinship with Nina. Their relationship should have been something completely different than what it was. They should have found solidarity in each other, that they were both taken advantage of by this director. He used their sexuality, he used their talent, and then he like throws them away. It's probably what would have happened to Nina if she hadn't died at the end. But because the patriarchy turns women against each other, Nina and Beth have a very hostile relationship the entire movie. Yeah. Good segue. Oh, thanks, Lizzie. Beth, Winona. I mean, this was a weird role for Winona, though. It was totally a weird role Because it was in the midst of, like, her exile from Hollywood, which is fucking ridiculous. And it was a small role compared to her long history in the film industry. And the roles she's still most famous for are the roles that are similar to Nina. Like, she would have played Nina 20 years ago. Right. That's interesting. I always thought that's why she was cast. Because they're nodding at the audience of, like, you threw her away. You threw Winona Ryder away. Fuck you. Because she, like, turned 30. And she, like, stole once, apparently. Like, who gives a shit? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, she turned 30 and she had, like, a weird moment and was punished for it for, like, 15 years. Right. Which is insane. (laughs) Sorry, we both have a lot of feelings about Winona. Our princess. (laughs) We love her so much. 
Uh, speaking of princess, Leroy has a very cute little name that he gives to his leading women. <laughs> the way that he calls her my little princess is so patronizing. It is so diminutive and it means that even though she is younger than him, <laughs> even though she has a position where he brought her up, he still has the power to force her into retirement and take that role away from her of being the princess. He needs to pass it on to a new young woman. It, oh god, it all just makes my skin crawl. There's a play, A Doll's House by Ibsen, that one of the most famous things about it is that this husband is constantly calling his wife little squirrel, little this, little that. Yeah. And it's a very quick, immediate way to understand the power dynamic in the relationship mm. is to minimize a woman down to a squirrel. <laughs> Yes. Even though it's under this disguise of affection, right? Right. And even though it's her face on the poster. Yeah. He decides that people don't want to see her anymore, basically. Yeah. Nina makes a comment in the beginning of the movie that Beth is still a beautiful dancer, that Margot Fontaine danced into her 50s. Nina really doesn't see the logic of why Beth has to go. Multiple dancers in the movie refer to her as a magical dancer. Yeah, we've obviously talked a lot about how women turn on each other, and I find it very satisfying how Nina starts the movie being very intimidated and sort of in love with Beth. She admires Beth so much. And at the first sign of being threatened by Beth, by another woman, Nina turns to slut-shaming and says, not all of us have to, as if implying that Beth slept her way to being mm. the principal dancer. After she just spent the first 10 minutes of the movie saying what an incredible dancer Beth was, right. she slut-shames her for no reason, because those are the tools women have at their disposal to hurt each other. That's really sad. I think it's really satisfying when she visits Beth towards the end of the movie, twice, because she's so scared that's what's going to happen to her. That's her fate. If she gets any older or any more resilient or rebellious or has any more of a point of view, she's going to end up like Beth in a hospital alone, not the lead dancer. The way that Leroy talks about Beth's accident, mm. that I'm, I'm quoting him here. I wrote down pretty much every single line he said because they <laughs> all upset me so much. <laughs> He says, everything Beth does comes from within, from some dark impulse. I guess that's what makes her so thrilling to watch, so dangerous, even perfect at times, but also so damn destructive. That is a man's fantasy of a woman. <laughs> like beautiful and troubled, and it makes me want to vomit. This movie heightens the idea of the manic pixie dream girl, right? Like troubled mm. and beautiful and talented and remarkable, and it takes it to a horrific place of like, these are the consequences of turning women into manic pixie dream girls. They start stabbing themselves in the face. He takes her accident or her suicide attempt mm. and turns it into some artistic statement. So fucking stupid. Even when he he is the catalyst yeah. for her destructive behavior. Yeah. And he is so unself-aware of that. I think the reason this movie is interesting is because everyone is not self-aware. Yes. Nina is not self-aware of how she's being abused. Tomas is not aware of how he's abusing the women in his company. Yes. And so when we end with Nina lying in a pool of her own blood mm. and she calls herself perfect, that is a direct response to Tomas' admiration for what Beth did. Mm, I never thought of it that way. That's really interesting. That hurting yourself for your art 
is beautiful in the eyes of this man. Because women are disposable. Yeah. As long as they entertained you sexually, creatively, before they got hurt. Because there's an expiration date anyway. Yeah. As you can see, this movie makes us very upset. (laughs) But you know what? There's not a lot of movies that bring up this kind of rage because they don't even dare to talk about it. I really appreciate that this movie shows an ugliness to the world that is so painful. But what other movies talk about this? Her mother, too, who from a two-dimensional perspective could just be seen as a stereotypical stage mom, Mm. obsessed with her daughter's success, jealous of her daughter's success, is also shown to be a cog in this same system. Mm. She was a dancer herself. She was brought up in this environment of chasing perfection in the eyes of someone else. Mm. And so her abuse and manipulation of Nina, and it gets really emotionally abusive, Mm. I think is more, again, a reflection of the system than it is about their actual relationship. I agree, yeah. I think that's actually a good segue to Lily. Yeah. And how their relationship is absolutely curated by something that they're not even aware of and is so much bigger than them. Mm -hmm. In the first half of the film, before all the like creepy manic stuff starts, Nina and Lily have some very startling interactions about Thomas. Lily says someone's hot for teacher, as if Nina has any agency over what's happening to her with her teacher. They immediately put in this context that Nina is participating in this relationship right? and that she is asking for it. They put responsibility on the other person when really all the responsibility lies with Thomas. At one point, Lily asks Nina what Thomas is like in bed and Nina doesn't want to talk about it and Lily thinks Nina is a prude. Like all of these moments that blame the other woman for something that is in no way their fault and something that they have no agency over. Lily is a really interesting character to me because Mila Kunis is credited as Lily slash the Black Swan. She becomes this image of the Black Swan to Nina only because Leroy has taught her to believe that. Yeah. And taught her to see Lily as a threat. The fact that Lily's scenes are sort of ambiguous as to whether they're real or not when she is conniving and trying to take Nina's role. Mm -hmm. All of those scenes fit within Nina's fantasies. If you take out all of the fantasy scenes, her other scenes are rather pleasant. She's nice to Nina. She's friendly. She really doesn't fit in that box as the black swan. Mm. In reality, it's only Nina's fears about her. Another amazing example in this movie of Tomas' manipulation and abuse is that he very actively puts Lily and Nina against each other. When Nina vents to Lily that she's stressed and that she's scared about this, Toma blames her for talking to Lily. As soon as they have a bond as two women, he comes in the middle and chastises them for that. They are punished for having a bond against him. Yeah. And so Nina is now put in a position to say, well, if I want Toma's approval, I need to be antagonistic towards this other girl. I think it's because she does doesn't know where else to channel her confusion and her rage about what's happening to her. And she has permission to channel rage towards this other woman. She doesn't have permission to channel rage towards Toma. So she sees everything that's happening to her and she's like, it's Lily. It's Lily's fault. She scapegoats Lily, not even by her own fault. She just doesn't know where else to turn to be upset over everything that's happening. She's like, she's trying to steal my part. And I realized that 
there's no indication at all that Lily is trying to steal yeah. her part. Yeah. There's only the idea of that stemming from these roles, these myths of women. Yeah, absolutely. That she's been taught. One of the most famous scenes in this movie, particularly involving Lily, is the sex scene. Yeah. Which I didn't really get. So let's let's unpack that. The most I got out of that sex scene was that if Nina's mother wants her to fit into the white swan allegory, mm-hmm. her room is pink. Mm-hmm. She's got that pink butterfly wallpaper. <laughs> She's got stuffed animals. She's living in a child's bedroom. Mm-hmm. That's what her mom wants her to be. Toma now wants her to be the black swan. Mm-hmm. He wants her to be dark and dangerous. That scene, the sex scene, is her rebelling against her mother's view of her mm. as the white swan and trying desperately to fit into Toma's ideal of her. Mm. And maybe it's using their sexual encounter as a metaphor of like her trying to take that defiant spirit from Lily and embody it for herself. Yeah. What I will acknowledge about the scene, though, is that it is dripping in the male gaze. Yes. It really emphasized much, much deeper than if it was directed by a woman that Nina has no space for herself. She is invaded by everyone in this movie. Everyone feels like they are entitled to a piece of her. The mother, Toma, even the filmmaker... Everyone feels like they are entitled to this woman's body. They are entitled to her sexuality, to her talent. Everyone is grabbing at her. I thought it was sort of inadvertently effective that even the film feels entitled to her. Yeah. I can't say that that was intentional, but it added another layer that was heartbreaking for me. Yeah. And the same thing with Toma having real nuance in a way that I think he wouldn't have if a woman had directed this. After she kisses him at the end and goes back on stage, he has this like goofy boyish smile. Mm. And I was like, that would not have existed if a woman directed it because I don't give a fuck about his response to that moment. I think that that moment is specifically nodding to the fact that it's all about him. Mm. Totally. He even has a little smirk on his face at the end Mm -hmm. as he's looking at her on the floor and he says, what did you do? There's one random scene that I think makes very clear what this whole movie is about. When she's riding the subway and there's an old man across from her. Oh, yeah. God. Very openly sexually harassing her and touching himself. And she is so disgusted by that moment. Mm. Because she's been taught that that's disgusting behavior. (laughs) Yeah. She hasn't been taught that the way that Toma talks to her is disgusting. Yeah. Wow, that's a good point. The horror, man. The absolute horror. This is a damn good horror movie, and we haven't talked about the aesthetic aspects at all. And I think that's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think it sort of goes without saying that this is an absolutely gorgeously shot movie. Yeah. And the music is incredible. Like, we sort of don't even need to talk about all that because it's so good. Yeah. And all of these themes are, I think, a little bit more worth unpacking. Mm -hmm. The Babadook. No! No! It's so scary. It's so scary. (laughs) I think that's one thing that separates the Babadook from our first two movies and our movies from last week as well, because we've been in sort of a scary season in the podcast right now. The Babadook is the scariest movie I've ever seen in my life. It is a proper horror movie. And I'm saying this to the listeners as well who maybe haven't seen it yet. 
I'm giving like a full disclaimer. If you're not good with scary movies, don't watch The Babadook because it's really, really scary. Yeah, watch it. (laughs) You can handle it. You're a grown up. You and I watched it together the first time we watched it. And I was just peeing my pants. I was so scared. (laughs) And then the second time I watched it in prep for this episode, because I knew like when the jump scares were going to happen and what I knew was going on, I was able to just focus on the content. And I realized I wasn't really scared anymore. I was just so sad and heartbroken for the themes of this film and for the two lead characters. It's sort of an incredible marriage of style and content this movie. It is so fucking scary. And at the same time, it's such a good story. And those two things existing simultaneously interwoven is just a huge achievement. I'm just so in love with this movie. It's absolutely brilliant in every way. And frankly, this is our first movie in a while that we've covered on the podcast that was written and directed by a woman. Mostov. Yes. And it shows. You think it shows in the lack of male gaze that you and I have been talking about in these first two movies? Yeah, it's definitely there in Black Swan. It's even there a little bit in Thelma. Yeah. The way that Essie Davis is shot in this movie Mm. is entirely unrelated to the way that she looks. Yeah, there's a definitive lack of male gaze in how she's supposed to look. She looks exactly like how her character would look. And that's all that matters. Yeah. And it means that we're able to focus on the story, on her performance, on, frankly, the things that matter. Amen. So The Babadook was released in 2014. It was written and directed by Jennifer Kent. And it stars Essie Davis as Amelia and Noah Wiseman as Samuel. And in The Babadook, a widowed mother and her young son are haunted by a malicious storybook come to life. (laughs) So scary. This recurring theme we've had in this episode, which is the horror of, I think is the clearest in this movie, Mm. where the symbol of fear, the Babadook, this force of evil, is so clearly a metaphor for something else. Mm -hmm. I think it's the most transparent in this film. I watched this movie, and to me, the Babadook is a representation of her grief over her husband's death Mm. and her depression. I think it's also related to the horror of trying to move on from a tragedy in your life. It's not only the tragedy itself, it's not only the grief, but it's the process of how to take care of your family and move on after that. Absolutely. I think it's really important and beautiful that this movie takes place seven years after the tragedy. It's not right after. It's How do you move on with your life and maintain your role as a caretaker? You know, I think one of the biggest fears that this movie explores is the fear of the prospect of not being able to take care of your children. Yeah. I think so much of this movie is about theatricalizing a part of motherhood that most people don't want to talk about. Most people want to romanticize motherhood. They want to say it's only bliss. When this movie touches on something really beautiful and dark about motherhood, especially if you're dealing with something else in your life, like grief. 
And brilliantly, Amelia goes through all five stages of grief in this movie. Mm. We start the movie in the first stage, denial and isolation. She has been in that state for seven years since her husband's death. I just want to paint the picture that the movie makes these really powerful references to the fact that she has sort of pushed her husband's death sort of under the rug while she's been raising her son. And that made me think to myself, God, she was breastfeeding Samuel. She was putting him in his car seat. She was being a single mother to a newborn baby just after her husband died. She didn't have time to grieve. I mean, you think about mothers of newborns and how, like, shot they are. There's no sleep. There's no time for themselves. To imagine going through that phase of being a mother while dealing with grief is unimaginable. Right. And God knows she's not getting any support from her family. Yeah. Her sister Claire is a really interesting character Mm. because she goes to her looking for support and she doesn't get any. Her sister even blames her for her depression. It's very painful, I think, for people who love people who deal with depression or who have mental illnesses, I think it's very common for them to put the onus on that person who's suffering and say, you know, why aren't you working harder? Why aren't you getting out of bed? Why aren't you trying? And I think that pressure to overcome a mental illness is what the Babadook ends up becoming, is the manifestation of this thing that's haunting you. Yeah. That is not your fault. And she even makes her feel guilty for it, for making her feel bad. Samuel has a very specific way he phrases talking about the Babadook. He says, you can't let it in. Don't let it in. And after the Babadook has possessed their home and possessed Amelia, he says, why did you let it in? And I just feel like that's such common phrasing for how people deal with people who have depression, which is why are you participating in this thing happening to you? Mm. Rather than looking at it as this demon force has invaded her home. It's not her fault. She didn't let it in. It invaded. And the way that it invades is really interesting. Mm. It just appears in an innocent looking book. Pretty innocuous, pretty casual. She didn't buy it. She didn't receive it in any way. It just appears out of nowhere. And it even is disguised as something friendly and comfortable. And it creeps up. Mm. gaining power yeah. until you don't really know what's happened. One of the Babadook's lines is, the more you deny, the stronger I get. Yeah, You start to change when I get in. The Babadook is growing right under your skin. So midway through the movie is when the Babadook actually possesses her. Yeah, And now we are seeing the Babadook not only as an external fear, but as an internal fear. Yeah. She is turned into the thing that she fears most. She is turned into a bad mother. Absolutely. Not only being a bad mother, but it's all these very specific anecdotal things that she's afraid of. She stays in bed all day. She doesn't tend to Samuel. The fantasy of sort of the worst things that can happen to your family, not knowing how to take care of your dog. All of these things manifest themselves once the Babadook has taken control of her. Being abusive to your kid. I mean, that's like the biggest fear that parents have is that they're going to fuck their kid up with too much rage. And that is precisely what happens. Ironically, though, the things that Amelia are most afraid of happening 
that happen once the Babadook takes over. I don't know if that's actually the biggest fear in a family. I feel like the biggest fear in a family already happened, which is a random abrupt death Mm. in your nuclear family. That's, I feel like, people's biggest fear of a family. And that's already happened. So this whole movie is just laden with fears of domestic peace and love being destroyed. There's a great scene when she meets another woman at the grocery store. Oh, yeah. And as soon as this woman learns about her tragedy, Mm -hmm. she runs away. And I think that's a pretty common experience for people who have gone through trauma, Mm. that it becomes more isolating. Yeah. That what they need most is connection. They need support. But the trauma itself scares people away and makes it worse. Absolutely. I think this movie does a really fantastic job at making it clear that so many people in her life who are supposed to be helping her right now are actually judging her and shaming her that she's not handling it better on her own. And I find that kind of ironic because you want her to be a better mother and then you're not offering her any resources to do that. The social workers, her sister, the other mothers at school, the teachers who make it very clear that they do not think Samuel is a good kid. Hmm. I've taught in the past and that opening scene of her having the conference with the teachers was very like triggering and I thought it was written in a really amazing way. The teachers are fairly accusatory to her. They're basically saying, you're a bad mother and your son is a bad kid. And she keeps saying, I'll have a talk with him. And I just flashed back when I saw this movie to having parents tell me that, oh, I'll have a talk with him. I'll talk to him. Which means nothing, which really means nothing because your kid has already been talked to and doesn't understand where his behavior is coming from. And I just sort of felt bad for everyone in that situation. The teachers who are at their wits end with this troubled kid and the mother who feels incredibly judged by these teachers who do not understand her child. I mean, Samuel is dangerous. Yeah. He plays with weapons. He's objectively troublesome. And so, in part, you can't really blame Auntie Claire for wanting to separate her daughter from him. Absolutely. But she doesn't really do it in a supportive way. She puts all of the blame on Amelia. Yeah. Returning to the theme of grief, when Amelia is possessed by the Babadook, Mm -hmm. that's when she starts to go through these other phases of grief. We see her experiencing anger towards the memory of her husband's death. Mm. And we see her bargaining with the idea of it being Samuel's fault. Or maybe she even wishes that Samuel had died instead of her husband. And we see her in a catatonic state of depression. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. I never thought of it that the Babadook jumpstarts her going through the phases of grief, because until the Babadook arrived, she had just been in denial. Right. That's really interesting. She had all of her husband's belongings locked away in the basement, where she didn't have to think about it, but she was haunted by it every night in her sleep. And in the first half of the movie, she's in this unconscious state of delirium and depression, and it's affecting Samuel. It's affecting why Samuel is so hyper and so manic, because the two of them are not communicating. And they're not sleeping. 
That's a huge thing that I love about this movie. They make sleep deprivation like a lead character. Yeah. You're so aware this whole movie that neither of them are sleeping for like days on end. It's so effective. Yeah. Going back to what you said about Samuel suddenly becoming resourceful and he like matures immediately. I love his line at the beginning. I promise to protect you if you promise to protect me. That just seems like the core of family, doesn't it? That seems like the core of what a good family is. And he makes that offer to her and she accepts, but even she doesn't really appreciate the magnitude and the profundity of what he's saying. And she comes to understand by the end of the movie. She is only able to be saved from the Babadook and brought out of her depression, metaphorically speaking, Mm -hmm. because Samuel sees in her that her behavior is not actually her. It's the Babadook. That's one of the most heartbreaking parts of this movie to me, that he acknowledges that it is an external force that has taken her over, but it's not her herself. People with illness like that need loved ones to recognize the real self that is separate from the illness. Yeah. I also find it very ironic and beautiful and sad that she's a caretaker. Like her job Mm. is to take care of older people. This is a woman who at home has to take care of Samuel and at her work has to take care of older people. There is no space in her life for self-care. Her entire identity revolves around taking care of people, which is a pretty female narrative. Yeah. I have a pet peeve in general when people feel entitled to tell women that they look tired. People tell her that she looks tired throughout the movie and it drives me bonkers. Don't tell a woman that she looks tired. She knows she's tired. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Especially in context with the conversation we've been having that women are told that their value is based on their looks. Right. So like, don't comment on the way a woman looks. Ever. Just as a good rule, don't ever comment on how a woman looks. (laughs) There are several shots throughout the film where it seems like people are floating or they're moving in slow motion. And I think that's really to hit home the idea of how surreal and dreamlike it feels to be in a tragedy. When someone's died in your life, it feels like life is moving in slow motion and that you're in a dream. It doesn't seem like reality. So that opening shot where she's floating into bed, that's been her state of life for seven years. She's floating. She has no idea where the earth is and what's real because she's delirious with grief. It's also honestly what depression feels like. Sure. There's one scene when she is lying on the floor of her bedroom in full terror and the camera is focusing on these objects in the room around her indiscriminately Mm -hmm. and her heart is racing and she's feeling claustrophobic. I watched that scene having a little of my own experience Mm. and I knew exactly that that scene was representing a panic attack. Mm. I just commend Jennifer Kent so much for including such a specific and truthful visual representation of that. Mm, Totally. In writing the screenplay for this movie, Jennifer Kent apparently did a lot of research on not only PTSD, but on postnatal psychosis, which was a phrase I had never even heard of. Mm. It seems like postnatal psychosis is very different from postpartum depression. And both are very serious conditions that happen to women after they've given birth. And I just appreciate that Jennifer Kent earned that in this film by doing so much research and making sure that this felt authentic to the darkness that comes with being a new mother. I feel like they're also such taboos. Totally. Because were obsessed with women being perfect mothers. Yeah. I feel like there is a precedence in a lot of horror movies of making mothers villains Mm. and making mental illness 
villains. Totally. And this movie subverts both of those things. Her mental illness and her identity as a mother are inextricably linked. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how Jennifer Kent communicates to us what the Babadook represents at different times of the movie. Because I think she does this visually. Mm -hmm. In an early scene in the movie, when we go down to the basement and we see all of her husband's belongings, we see his clothing nailed to the wall with a hat. Yeah. It's a fedora, but it's still an old-fashioned hat. It looks like the Babadook. Exactly. Samuel also kind of worships this magician on TV (laughs) who wears the top hat and the cape. So the Babadook is sort of an amalgamation of both of those images. Mm. It presents itself to Amelia with visual imagery that maybe even subconsciously reminds her of both her husband and her son. Mm. And then, very brilliantly done, as soon as she is possessed by the Babadook, we have this wide shot of her bedroom, and in the center of the screen is... A mannequin dressed in women's clothing Mm. with a hat on top. So now we know that the Babadook is wearing women's clothing. Yeah. There's also an amazing shot where they're also up in the bedroom. It's towards the end when they're about to defeat the Babadook. When Amelia stands up from the bed and she walks across the room about to approach the Babadook. And the shadow on the wall looks as if she is the Babadook. Mm. Even though it's already been expelled from her, the film is making a slight reference that it's never really going to leave you. If you're going to approach it, that's because it's still in you a little bit. And that's really what the end of the movie movie is about. Yeah. God, the ending is so good. It's so heartbreaking and so smart. You can't get rid of the Babadook. It's interesting that that line is spoken. It's in the book. And it's threatening. Yeah. It's a very scary idea that you can never get rid of the Babadook. You can never get rid of your biggest fear. Yeah. You can never get rid of your trauma. Mm. And that's real. When you have trauma, when you have an illness like depression, you can't just get rid of it. You can't just cure it. It lives within you, but you can learn to master it. You can learn to live with it. Yeah, and that's what she does. She learns to live with the Babadook in her house. He lives in the basement. She feeds it. She tends to it. She tends to it like her garden. And like a child. Yeah. Once she has the cathartic flashback of seeing her husband, it's not that she's no longer afraid of the Babadook. It's that she's no longer afraid of the tragedy that's already happened to her. When you're not afraid of a tragedy, you can move on from it. And that would be the fifth phase of grief. Right. Acceptance. Yeah. And that acceptance is the thing that directly beat the Babadook. Yeah, absolutely. One very quick line that's so good and so sad. She's about to go down into the basement to feed him. And Samuel says, can I see him? And she says, someday when you're older. Yeah. As this implication that this will never go away and you will learn how to deal with your trauma when you're older. Yeah. It's just really heavy. There's also this brilliant shot right before that moment in the garden when we start underground with poor Bugsy's dead body. Oh, yeah. 
buried in the dirt, Mm -hmm. and we pan up above ground to reveal Amelia tending to a fresh rose Mm. that's grown out of the soil. Yeah. Just like scientifically speaking, dead bodies fertilize plants. Mm. That is the circle of life. And what that moment says to me is that new life is born from grief. Yeah. And only when we properly mourn what we've lost can we grow something new and beautiful. I also love in the ending that the social workers are still fairly cold and fairly judgmental, but she has this new resilience to taking them on. It sort of implies that the world is not going to change for you based on the trauma you're dealing with. The world will stay the same, but you have to develop the resources to deal with it. I just love that, that she's like so sassy in that last scene and the Mm -hmm. social workers are pretty much the same. And when they're in the garden together, we see him using his bow and arrow responsibly, hitting a dart in a nice way that doesn't (laughs) hurt anything. We see him doing a magic trick that she's so supportive of. And we see him dancing and laughing like the actual seven-year-old he should be. It's so sweet that the movie ends with the two of them in this like fairly out of character cuddly moment. It's really lovely. I love that we can end this episode with a happy ending. As happy as you can be when you've conquered a tragedy, yeah. I think the thesis of this whole film, in addition to the two other films, honestly, that we've discussed today, is a line that Samuel has quoting his magician. Life is not always as it seems. It can be a one thing, but it can also be very treacherous. And that to me is what all of these movies represent. What a roller coaster of an episode, Sam. <sighs> yeah. These were all very scary movies. I'm a little relieved that next week, which we'll talk about, will be a little lighter. Yeah. So we're finishing our Halloween season, and what happens right after Halloween? Thanksgiving. Yep. So with that, in between these two holidays, let's introduce our next episode. Our next episode is Tradition and Family. (sighs) A lot of people just got chills. Yeah. (laughs) Way scarier than horror or witches going home for family traditions. That's really funny. The first movie we'll be covering is the 2002 New Zealand drama Whale Rider, in which a Maori girl fights to prove her worthiness to become the chief of her tribe. Love, Whale Rider. The second movie we'll be covering is the 2012 Saudi Arabian drama Wajda, in which a girl growing up in Saudi Arabia enters a Quran reciting competition in order to win money to buy a bicycle. And the third movie we'll be covering is the 2003 indie comedic drama Pieces of April, in which a young New York woman prepares Thanksgiving dinner for her estranged family. Love it. I can't wait to discuss these three movies. (laughs) They're wonderful. I don't know about you guys, but I've been feeling particularly weighed down by the news lately, Mm. but I hope that we all can have an emotionally healthy holiday and get the best out of it that we can. And if anything, you've got three great movies to share with your families. If you need something to fill the awkward silence after a really tense political conversation came up, just watch one of these movies. (laughs) Silence goes away. You're watching a movie. Right. Eat lots of food. Hug your little ones. Hug your old ones. And love each other. Love each other. Have a good Thanksgiving. Bye.
Feminist Popcorn is produced and hosted by Samantha Rare and Elizabeth Frankel. Our theme music is by Barrett Riggins. Our cover art is by Hannah Perry. Keep up with us on Instagram and Facebook at Feminist Popcorn. Tweet us at official underscore fempop. Email us at feministpopcorn at gmail.com. Find links to all our movies on feministpopcorn.com and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday. I love you, but you just said Gail Mays. No, I didn't. Yeah. No, I didn't. <laughs>